So, um, amazing to me to be able to share this with you uh, and to see the effect um, in, in this way because we're not hearing our Lord say to King of Kings, there's something more that I want you to do. Um, this is actually him. I want to just keep going back to that. He is the encourager. And so in meeting him, he fills us with that encouragement. And the scriptures teach us, Jesus teaches us, freely you've received, freely give. And that's how you know it's life-giving. Um, as we meet him, he wants to instill this in. And I love the fact that the early church began, and it was so present with them, that they had a guy named Joseph come, and, and, and they said, no, 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 your name's not Joseph, your name is Barnabas. You're, you're from Barnabas from now on. You know what the word Barnabas means? Encourager. Encourager. And so, and so um, he becomes for us the example of what the Lord wants to do in us. Um, the, the one Barnabas teaches us that uh, we're all to be Barnabases. And, uh, and, and I love that because it is the character and person of the Holy Spirit within. I hate what our culture is doing because there's so many avenues of that encouragement. What you're finding, forgive me, this is, my, this is being quoted. This is a forgive me moment. <laughs> our culture growing up knows nothing about the sacrament and doesn't care about it. Our Lord has given it as a means of encouragement. I don't know how else to say it. It doesn't mean all oh, the liturgical church is now trying to thump and say that they're right and the non-denoms, they're, they're wrong. I'm not saying anything about anything, about anything, except our Lord gave us means of grace. There's different avenues of the means of grace. When a preacher gets up and entertains us for an hour and gives us no substance of grace and hasn't come to us with a message of hope, my friends, I'm greatly entertained, but <laughs> like a good movie... Next. <laughs> I mean, it's like the entertainment culture, right? I want substance. Grace is substance. There's a means of grace. There's so many ways the Lord gives us the means of grace. And you know it because the church is meant to be an environment of it. In the, in the church, in the pastorate, in the small groups, in our one-to-one -one relationship with Jesus and our private devotions, there are means of grace in which we are strengthened and encouraged to do the work God's given us to do. Yes? That's him. It's what he's doing inside of us. And the only way I can conclude this with you is by saying, uh, there's a sick that I'd like to do. <laughs> <laughs> the only retreat I've ever been on that I've heard of a stick. Um, <laughs> the, the, the thing is that is so, um, so, so, uh, so perfect is that, is that um, I get concerned uh, in the church that the church is... Um, forms it by naturally into people that we know and see. So when your 30-year-old female is in the church and she's not married and she doesn't fit in with anybody, nobody sees her. When the 54-year-old widow is now among us and didn't know she was going to be a widow at the age of 54, doesn't fit into the couples group anymore, we don't see her. It's amazing how it just naturally happens that we don't see. And when this gift starts residing in the church, we see everybody. And we are there 
as a church to see everybody. And the one person that we see most and begin to see most is the outsider. I mentioned that name, outsider, because that's what's presented to us in 1 Corinthians 14. When the in-outsider comes in the midst and sees the building up, the outsider will say amen to, to what's going on in the church, which is fascinating that the outsider now has our language. Um, you'll read that in 1 Corinthians 14. It's late in the morning, and sometimes um, we've been done doing so much talking, I want to be very focused on what I do today as we close this time together. But what I want to say is that, is that the, the outsider needs to see the church healthy. The world that comes into the church needs to see the church healthy. It doesn't need to see the church performing well or to have a mask of things that are well, but it needs to be substantively healthy. And, uh, and that's how, uh, in one sense, mission does begin, that the church is healthy. Our kids are our first evangelistic field. They are seeing and growing up in an environment where they are being encouraged and they're seeing it lived out amongst the family. So many times I hear the, the epidemic of the pastor's kids. Well, why? Well, the PKs, why? Because they suffered with the, the burdens of the church. Oh, my Lord. That's because it was not a healthy church. And when you grow up and get, are given the gift of an inheritance uh, of growing up in the, in the faith, uh, my friends, this is a great gift to the kids that most kids don't have. Um, if the church is healthy, then the kids will know this and have it in their heart and soul. And the teenagers will know it in their heart and soul. And they will be changed because of it as they go out into that world. And that's what I want to end with. Um, I want somebody to read for me Romans chapter 15 uh, and verse 2. And I, I'd, like, I'd like somebody to read Romans 15, 2. Um, and I don't care what translation. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Say it again. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So... So this is how I want to end. Um, who is our neighbor? So, so, so the whole point of this is, if we as leaders start to practice this and learn to live in this, and we begin to equip the body of Christ into this, the natural thing that happens is this actually becomes the substance of mission. This does. This does. It becomes the substance of mission. It is out of this that have been birthed, if you read the stories of the World Vision, Salvation Army, Heifer Project, uh, the rescue missions, care for the hungry, the homeless, the needy, have all come out because they've learned this in the context of the church, that what the Lord has given the church, and when the church becomes healthy, it spills out into the world that we're given. And suddenly out of it comes uh, the needs that are in our community, who's usually the first ones to, to, to be the ones that spot those needs? It's those who have been cared for first. So what I'd like to do with you um, to close this time together is I would like to do um, a microscopic look um, at that question of who is my neighbor. And, and uh, I want to do it through a common story that if you don't know, you shouldn't be in the chapel. I mean, you should, if you're a leader, you should know at least this story. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Yeah? yeah? Somebody's nodding your head. So microscopically, this is everything. This is the summation of the entirety of the Bible found in just a few verses. 
in effect, there is a body on the side of the road, half dead. What do we know about that body? Anybody? What do we know about the body? Beaten up? Robbed? Again? No, not the body. I mean, might, might be. Could be. But we don't know. We know it's a male. We know it's naked and beaten up and bruised and half dead. You don't know anything else. We don't know if he's Samaritan or a Jew. We don't know if he's a barbarian Scythian or slave. We don't know if he's wealthy or rich or poor or we don't educated, non-educated. We don't know anything about his politics. Anything about the morals. We don't know anything about anything about him. Sorry? Yeah, he has been. And along comes somebody to rescue and to build up the body. Which has, been this, the, the, which has been Friday night and Saturday. The imagery of building up the body. Here he comes. And there you go. Thank you so much. I've, just sum, I've literally summarized the entirety of the Bible. Why? Because we were beaten up on the side of the road in Genesis 3 and left for dead. And praise be God, Bethlehem happened. Praise be the Lord, Good Friday and Easter morning happened. Praise God for the way that is actually described you, you've got this parable where the majority of it is called meticulous mercy. That's how I call it. Because it's not just Samaritan saw him, boom, and took care of him. No, no, no. He got down. He examined. He went back. He got the oil, the wine. You see, he's bandaging the wound. He's taking the body onto his, onto his chariot and going to the innkeeper. You meet the innkeeper, and, and then there's cost that is paid the meticulous care of building up this dead body by the Samaritan, our Lord, our Savior, the whole of the gospel is found right in that imagery. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. That's what we do. That's the whole point. There's mission right there. That's what we do at the cost of our Savior's own life. That, the, that, the, that we might be made new again. Now, there are other people in the story, the other two that, oh, I kind of don't want to talk about the two, because they're from the church. They're the ones that embody the teaching, the, the, the commands, the Levitical, the Levitical rites of the priesthood and the temple and the law. There they are, the Levites and the priests that are also on the scene. What's their story? What are they known for? They see, they see, and they pass by. And then generations of commentarians have to come alongside and try to excuse why, because of Levitical law, because of cleanliness issues and practices and law, all the reasons justifying why they did not stop and do what the Samaritan did. And there you've got these two unfortunate characters who in their, in their way before the church, and that's the problem, they represent us, don't they? What does the Samaritan represent in the Bible? Are they good people, bad people? So, so in John 4, we learn, parenthetically in John 4, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans, Right? And that, they actually called Jesus a Samaritan at one point, I believe. Right? 
So, I mean, they, they, they're not us. And yet Jesus erects in the story the Samaritan to do the work that the other two in their perfection did not do. And we have to live into that story. And all of it rests because it's a doctrinal question. And that's how the framing of the story happened. Outside the story of the five characters, the Levite, the priest, the dead body, the Samaritan, the innkeeper, a story our Lord gave us, he's actually in dialogue with a lawyer. And the lawyer has asked the question, who is my neighbor? He knows the command, love the Lord to God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, but... Who is my neighbor? See, that's, that's the point we want to talk about. <laughs> Lord, Jesus is like, really? Are you kidding me? In the story that Jesus tells, who plays the lawyer in that story, in the drama? Who plays the story of the lawyer? The beaten man on the side of the road. Well, you just stole the thunder. Because <laughs> most of us would say that the lawyer in Jesus' drama is played by the Levite and the priest who see and pass by. And that's true. But what they cannot see is what you, Fred, have already seen. Is that the lawyer, like us, is the beaten man on the side of the road. And that our Lord and Savior in the story is actually playing the Samaritan to the lawyer. He's come to build him up by first tearing down his prejudice. I want to show you a Samaritan who you hate with all your heart. Do what you know you should do. I want to show you what taking this gift of life into the world is all about. It doesn't matter who the person is. We're to give it. The church is designed to go, yes, but that person doesn't agree with our politics. That person doesn't agree with our morals. That person has acted wickedly. That person, we get to give it because we've gotten it. Whether they receive it isn't the question. We're to give it. And that's the nature of things. I want to tell you that every part of me wants to um, say this simply, but to tell you how hard this is. One of the things that that the Lord gave to me to do, um, and that's why you've seen the, the things out there um, in the corner, um, is that I have, um, my wife and I, in our, in our design, in our desire to build up the body of Christ in the discipleship that Jesus calls us to, is to design devotionals that are literally meant to take scripture and to apply them. And so, as you can probably see in, in the way I've talked, the first devotional we put out was called Real Identity. Who are we? Who are we really in Christ? Um, and, and that devotional is designed really for early, early work in evangelism. It goes back to Genesis. It, it helps that process of taking a new convert and walking through devotionally what it means to grow in our foundations of who we are. The second devotional is called Real Love, which is taken from the epistle of 1 John, that, that that's the nature of the body of Christ. We must love one another as the Lord has loved us. We have not got one excuse not to love one another. It is, it is the royal law. And that's the nature of 1 John. And that led to the third devotional called Real Mercy, 
where if that church is healthy and knows how to love one another as we've been loved, we will take that mercy out. Real mercy was really fun to me to do, to write, because real mercy is, I think, the heart of God. It's the nature of his character. He is, um, the word in, in Hebrew is hesed. He is the God of mercy. Um, and that's what he requires of us, um, to love mercy, um, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And mercy's hard, because mercy is not what we're grown up with to see and to know. And, um, and so during one of the pieces, I will not tire you this late in the morning um, with the nature of this book, but, but in one point, I, 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 I bring us to, in one of the chapters, to the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and the role that our Lord shows in showing the lawyer mercy by teaching mercy, that those who we least expect who know how to show mercy actually teach us to live mercy. Just wild wild grace given through us to those doesn't matter who they are don't have to know anything about them because that which we have received we get to give I had no idea how to do this so I closed with this story part of what I do here is in, in writing on the devotion I tell story behind it to make the, the, the scripture come to a place where we can see it and know it and in this particular story um, I um, was told by my bishop to, in my processes of training, having finished a clinical pastoral education summer in the emergency room and having done really well. Did I tell you that? I did really well. I passed like everybody else passed. I was told by, the, my, uh, by my bishop I had to do another summer in clinical pastoral education. And I knew exactly why. He did not like evangelicals. At all. You guys who thump the Bible think you've got all the answers there, and I'm going to put you in a place where there are no answers answerable. And I just felt the pre- I felt the bias, I felt the hurt, and I didn't want to do this. And so what he did is he put me in a, a state mental hospital on one of the lower functioning wards where I would make no difference in anybody's life for 11 weeks. That's just impossible. How do you not make a difference in somebody's life? How do you do that? And he wanted me to, literally to be in a place where I would have effect on nobody. And so I spent the first half of the summer just ticked at the bishop. It's fun to be ticked at the bishop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right, you're wrong. And I, so anyway, and the, the supervisor was just literally helping me to see how um, wrong my focus was. And um, and he was really kind of done with me because what he saw is that my job that summer was to pass to please the bishop so I could be ordained and not to love the people I'd been sent. So the approval systems were all screwed up, massively screwed up. And when I crashed and burned within a few weeks of being there because of this, and, and almost was at the point of being dismissed by the supervisor. Love the story. This was before I became perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why my wife is not here. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. And I realized that what I needed to do with the 30 people on the ward was to find out those I could love and just do really well and invest myself for the rest of the summer in those that that I could, I could find that platform with. 
And so I came for my weekly meeting with the bishop, and I mean, with my supervisor, and he said, how are things going? He said, well, look, I've taken, you know, there's a group of about six or seven that I've got, I've got a platform with that I can, that I can you know, make a difference. I'm investing in their life. And he was not happy, again with me. And he said, why have you chosen a few and not loved all? And I said, well, the rest are just, they're just, they don't want, they don't want me around their space. And I don't really want to be in their space. But these I can handle. And he said, you need to love the 30 equally. So I'm going to read. It's easier this way. The next few weeks I did exactly what Leslie, my supervisor, said. Love the 30 equally. The only way to do this with integrity, I decided, was to leave my tool belt home. The tool belt is what we do to fix everybody. I love tool belts. <laughs> uh, I've got a plan for your life. All right. I wasn't there to fix anybody's problem, not anymore. I made sure in the course of a week, I spent time with each person. If they didn't want me around, I stayed at a distance. I had no agenda but to simply be with them. I must say, I missed my tool belt. There was suffering on this ward every day, unchanging. With tools, I could focus on solutions. Um, I could focus on solutions. Without them, all that was left to be with these people and their suffering today and again tomorrow was no hope that they'd be better. No chance we could set goals or see improvement and take step forward. Not here. Halfway through the summer, I wrote this in my journal. Each day, despair grows deeper. I don't know how to love when I can't help. Is that wrong? All my life, I've lived in a world where love and hope are inseparably bound. Who cares if something's broken? We fix it. We change the story. We believe that with God, all things are possible. But here, it's different. The longer I stay, the more afraid I get. This could be me. I could be suffering like any person here. This ward could be my home for the rest of my life. I try not to think about it, but when I do, it makes me want to run. Instead, I force myself to stay. I ask what I have to ask. If I were any of these people today, how would I want to be treated? Honored. Loved. Lord Jesus Christ, show me how to love each person equally. That simple prayer was answered quickly. Sam. He was not an aide. In the story prior, I met him. I thought he was one of the aides. And he wasn't. He was a patient. Wrong word. He was one on the ward. He'd been living at the hospital for 17 years. With his condition worsening, a doctor decided to transfer him to our ward. And he was extraordinary. He knew exactly how to love everybody on the floor fully. Whether he was loved back or not, he didn't seem to care. There was no question he favored the underdog. The moment somebody got hurt or cried or lost their temper, he ran to help them. But he cared for the bully as much as he cared for those being bullied. And rarely did I see anyone care for him in return. One day I wrote about him in my journal. He's the tissue guy. Two criers this morning, he got there first. Watched a young man throw his juice cup against the wall. 
Sam cleaned it up and got him more juice. When I got, got in this morning, he was making beds with the aides. I love watching him care for the loners. He knows exactly what to do. Nurse slammed down the phone in anger. Sam saw it and went to her. He grabbed her hand and told her she looked pretty today. (laughs) Guy shoved him hard. Sam didn't shove back. Instead, he apologized. At the cafeteria, he bust everybody's dishes with no thanks. And every day, sometimes twice a day, he'd check up on me. You better now, aren't you? I can tell you no, he'd say. Or, you're right where you're supposed to be. Don't forget that. It's part of the plan. Or maybe he'd just get that buzz by, pat my shoulder, smile, and give me the thumbs up sign. Sam, you're the best, I'd call out. He'd shake his head and say, no, I'm not. The sad part about Sam was his cough. It was loud and guttural. Often it came in spasms, and when it started, he couldn't stop it. Those around him, of course, reacted. They'd yell at him, force him to leave the room, call him names. I know it hurt him, but I also could tell the coughing scared him. I went to the doctor and asked her about it. She explained it was a side effect of a long-term use of his medication. She added there was no treatment for it. He'll most likely die from this. She said, it will continue to get worse, and his heart can only take so much. You mean there's nothing you can do? She shook her head, and that for me broke my heart. Of all people I've met through all my years, I rarely see someone like Sam. He knows how to love without being loved back. He has no need for a tool belt. He's not out to fix anybody. He simply allows the kingdom of God to burst onto the floor in acts of mercy, kindness, and love. And I, for the summer, I got to be a student. Guess who I love? He asked me one late afternoon. I think you love everybody, I remarked. Guess again, he said. Who? Jesus, he explained. Smiled big and bright. And guess what? He persisted. What? I said, pretending like he was bothering me. And with that, he put his arm around my shoulder and gave me a gentle hug in almost a whisper. He told me everything I needed to know about him. He loves me back. Praise the Lord. We get to be encouragers in the world we're given by the power of the encourager.